Thank you for downloading the Sunday morning sermon at Paragon Church on Sunday, August 18th. I can't outgive God with special guest speaker Michael Summers. Today we want to talk about one of those ships that we see in the church. You know, fellowship, discipleship, worship. This is stewardship. And so what I would ask is as we look at the message this morning, please stay around. This Sunday, your connection group is right here for only about 30 minutes afterwards. Sandwiches, hang on just for a little bit. You say, I know all the stuff you're going to talk about, but you're going to run into somebody who doesn't. Can I give you just some real simple things that you can share with them for just 30 minutes? Is that okay? This is yes. This is no. I see no no's, so we're okay. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 22. And I didn't bring PowerPoint this Sunday. We'll do that with the, the little sticky note stewardship thing in a second. And, and what that is on the sticky note stewardship is simply looking at the four seasons of life or of generosity as we deal with those issues. The first one is health, when I'm healthy. When I go to the hospital, when I have my home going, when I go to heaven, and then what is my heritage after I'm gone? Because if we do stewardship correctly, it doesn't just last in our lifetime, it lasts in those we leave behind when we go to be with our Lord. Jesus addresses stewardship, but he never uses that term. That's a term we've taken, and and we understand what be a good steward is. God gave us that command in Genesis to take care of the garden, be a good steward. But what does it look like? I can't outgive God, though, as you're finding Matthew 22, is something you need to be very careful with. We do not practice magic. Now, I like magicians, but that's all illusion. But we do not practice magic, but we live in a land that does. All around us are people who believe in talismans and ruins, and karma. Ever heard of karma? Karma says what? If I do something good, what happens? Something good will happen to me. From pay it forward to pay it afterward to whatever, that's not how God works. He's not going to bless you just because you wrote a big check or did something for him. God doesn't play favorites. One of my favorite sermons is to go back and look at all the verses that deal with God not playing favorites, that he is not a person that deals with favoritism. He treats all men equally. It rains on the just and the unjust. Just because you do something, quote, for him doesn't mean he's going to do something for you. He's already done everything for you by coming and dying and rising again, that you might have a relationship with him when you give your life to him and ask for your sins to be forgiven by his righteousness, not by your works. See, that's the trouble. When we start thinking in those terms with God, we're thinking our works matter. Our works don't matter. Isaiah says it's all like filthy rags. What matters is what God works through us and in us not what we think we do for him. So with that in mind, I want you to come back to worship 
which is a part of stewardship, and see what Jesus says about it. In Matthew 22, he gets asked a question based on this idea of how do we give to God? What do we do for God? In verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Let me stop right there. The Pharisees were the legal experts. They were the religious lawyers. They knew all the codes, and they had added lots more to the codes that we had in the Bible. The things you see back in Leviticus and Numbers and the Ten Commandments, they had thousands and thousands upon that. And so they're really playing a game with him to say, if he says any one of those, he's guilty of all the others. Because their teachings said that all of them were just as important. That there was nothing more sacred than any other one. So do not burn your toast on Sunday was just as valid as do not steal. That's how silly some of their codes were. And so he says, which one is the greatest commandment? And notice what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That sounds awfully profound. Until you realize Jesus is just quoting scripture. He's talking to an expert in the law by quoting the law back to them, the books of the law, which this scripture comes from Deuteronomy. It's what Moses told them back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses has gathered after the exodus, they're about to go into the promised land, and he says, I want to remind you of some things. He's giving them sticky notes to take with them into the promised land. And in that, he says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. In Hebrew, it's Shema Israel, Adonai Ondehu, and Adonai It is known as the Shema passage. From early childhood, when they went out to Sunday school after worship, they learn the Shema. Shema means hear. So they called it that because that's the first word. Listen up. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. But then notice why he says after this. Now that he's got their attention, he says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That sound familiar? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, there's a difference there. Why? Well, we are getting the Greek in Matthew translating the Aramaic in a culture that's about 
oh, nearly 2,000 years, if not more, removed from Deuteronomy. But the concept is the same. For the Greek listener and the Aramaic speaker at the time of Jesus, mind would equate to their strength or their resources. So let me take you back in the Hebrew mindset to see what this really meant. If we're to worship God and give him everything he deserves in light of everything he's done for us, it first looks like loving him with all of our heart. Now, Valentine's Day is a long way off. But for the Hebrew and for that culture, even in the time of Christ, heart did not mean Valentine's. Heart was not the center of the emotions. If I wanted to tell Tricia back there that I loved her from a Hebrew standpoint, I said, oh, I love you with all my kidneys. Can you not see that Hallmark card? You give me kidney stones, babe. Or my spleen gurgles for you. My gut aches for you. You see, for that day and age, the emotions were in the bowels. They were in the organs. That's why they would look at the organs to see what emotional connection with the afterlife there might be when they tried to figure out what was going on at the oracle. What was the heart then? The heart was where your thoughts came from, they thought. We would equate it to intelligence, to conscience. It was your attitudes. The heart was the center of your attitudes. And so when Jesus is quoting, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, he's saying not with my emotions, but with my attitudes, my thought process, my mindset. Why is that important? Well, that's important because a lot of people think church is all about emotion today. We sing, we praise, we do all this, and I had church. That's great, but emotion fades. Remember, last time I was here, we talked about joy. Joy lasts, but happiness comes and goes. Emotion is like that. That's kind of like the stock market. God doesn't want us to love him with a roller coaster ride. He wants our mindset to be one that our attitudes are always focused on him and on his perspective. I can be down in the dumps. I can be depressed almost. But I can have an attitude that says God still has this. He hasn't left me. Go back and read some of the testimonies from those who were martyred for their faith, who were persecuted for their faith. Not like we think we are, but truly thrown in prison, their homes burned, children killed. Their attitudes show their love for God. They never give up because their faith is in Him. Love the Lord your God with all your attitudes. That also means we look at others the way Jesus looks at them. I don't look at somebody and think, why are they even here? My attitude towards somebody who's doing everything completely wrong is not a thing of they'll get what they deserve, but they need Jesus. How can I help? When you go to Walmart, does your attitude show your faith? 
Now, hear me very clearly. Not everybody's going to be able to go up to somebody and say, hey, do you know Jesus? But every one of us who know Jesus can say, hey, how's your day? Are you having a great day? Thank you for being so kind. Called him by name. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, You've Got Mail, anybody seen that? It's where they're in the grocery store, and Tom Hanks is trying to help Meg Ryan, who's in the wrong line, and he starts talking to the checker, and he calls her by name. Ah, Rose, such a beautiful name. Her whole attitude changes. Why? Because his attitude towards her was different from the first. The gospel is good news. We need to be people of encouragement and good news wherever we go. Then if the door opens to share about Christ, we've already got the platform. But we won't do that if we don't have the right attitude that these are people who need Jesus and that Jesus can change their whole life. It's an attitude of hope. It's an attitude of praise. An attitude of worship that goes beyond songs to seeing people's lives restored. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your attitude. Second thing, love the Lord your God with all your what? Soul. Repeat after me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind or strength. Okay, before we leave here, you're going to know that because that's what this is all about. The soul, that word, comes from the Hebrew word nephesh, which is connected to the word that is used in Genesis when God talks about he breathed his spirit into mankind. Our soul comes from God. But for the Hebrew here, for that Pharisee, he knows that his soul is what causes action. I can have the right attitude, but my soul is where my actions come from. For you see, I can say all the words I want. I can have all the right things in my words of testimony. But if my actions don't match my words, it's invalid. My actions come from my soul. Love the Lord your God with all your actions because that's where choice comes in. That's where that soul has the right to make a determination. Will I do what's right or not? In our family, as our boys were growing up, we created a family creed, and they will tell you very quickly what it is. Our creed as a family, the Summers family tree, at least for us, is simple. Do what's right with all your might. And we would say that almost every day as they were growing up. Somehow, we'd work it into a conversation. What are you going to do? We do what's right with all our might. What we were teaching them was stewardship with their soul, their actions. No matter what everybody else is doing, you do what's right, because what's right is what God determines is right, not what I think is right. One of the scariest things for me as I do research and as I work with churches and 
and as I was teaching at Wayland for 18 years, was working with youth ministers and seeing the results of a major study that showed that over 70% of church-going, self-professing Christian teenagers, yes, I'm looking back there, over 70% said that they never consulted God or prayed about decisions in their daily life. That when it came to decisions of right and wrong, they just did what they felt was right or wrong. We can't love the Lord our God with all our soul and make the right actions, decisions, if we don't know what is right from wrong. So part of loving the Lord our God with all our soul is spending time in his word. I love God. How much time did you spend in his word to know what he loves, to know what he wants, to know how he desires us to act? And now we're to the point in American Christianity, and it's elsewhere in the world, of I can be a Christian but do whatever I want and excuse any sin I want because I don't ever spend time in his word because it doesn't matter. I just call myself a Christian. It does matter. God has told us what's right and wrong. He preserved it here. If I'm going to love him with all my soul, I need to know what his word says. That's a part of stewardship. That's a part of worship. Are you getting the idea it's more than just singing songs? The thing says, love the Lord your God with all your strength. Back in the Hebrew or the Greek, Aramaic mind, it was mind. Because that's the thing they valued the most. But what that word strength means is not this. It's not physical strength. It's not Popeye. Otherwise, we'd all be eating spinach every time we came to worship. Strength to the Hebrew was all your assets. And we're not talking just money. Yes, the Bible does talk about finances. But what are your assets? Well, let's talk about some of those. Time. Using your time wisely. Talents. Learning. Adding skills. Learning new things. Having that database that God can pull from. But for the Hebrew, the greatest strength they had was not any of that greatest strength that they could love God with was their family. Love the Lord your God with all your family. Raising them to follow Him. Helping your spouse to become everything God had created that spouse to be. Every time I do a wedding, I always insert that word in the vows. And I pledge that I will help you become everything God created you to be. Why? Because that's part of my stewardship. I am here to help Tricia follow God. Why? Because she is part of my greatest source of resources, of assets that God has given me. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song where he called his spouse his greatest treasure. I cherish the treasure of you. 
Think about your children, your grandchildren. Say, what does that look like? Well, have you ever prayed with them? Not for them, but with them. We do a lot of praying for them. Keep them safe, keep them safe, keep them safe. They get into high school, start driving, keep others safe, keep others safe. But have you prayed with them? Have they heard you pray with them and pray for them? Have you read the Bible with them? Do you worship with them, not just at church, but during the week as you have opportunities? Do you take time to talk about the things of God? We have never been more communicative in our life as a people in this world through our phones, through our tablets, through all the electronics that we have. But the trouble is, we have never dialogued less. We don't converse. We just chatter. Think about all these texts. If we took all the texts in the world, what percentage would actually matter? Take 2%, 1%. They actually did a study on that too. Real issues that people could impact. The amount of texting time was less than 5%. Everything else of no value. If we're to love the Lord our God with all our assets, we need to start living a life of significance where we Take time to say what matters most. And we focus there. One of the great fallacies of my father's and his father's generation was this idea that as long as one is reached, it's worth it all. Well, we want to reach even the one, but you don't go after the one until the 99 are safe. You don't know what I'm talking about. It's the parable of the good shepherd who, once the 99 were safe, he went after the one that was lost. We have lost so many of the 99 because we're going after the one, and I don't know that we've ever found them. Significance here is here first. Take care of your church family first. When you talk about taking care of the widows and the orphans and the poor and the needy, take care of each other first, please. That's good stewardship. If one of you is hurting, huddle. Swarm to them. Help them. If we don't take care of our own, nobody else will. But don't use all your resources to reach just one. Paul said, I have become all things to all people so that by all methods I might reach some, not just one. Stewardship means having discernment and wisdom from God. But we won't get that if we don't consult Him. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, your attitudes, your actions, your assets. Now, if that wasn't enough, 
go back to Matthew 22 and turn over a page or two to Matthew 25, and you're going to find three parables. And Matt actually talked about one of these not long ago. But three parables that now look at them in light of this question right previous, the week previous, not even a week ago, maybe just a day ago, that the disciples heard this answer. Now he tells them these three parables. The first one is about ten virgins. And the ten virgins have their lamps for a wedding festival. Now, they are there in that day and culture to represent God's blessing, the heavenly blessing. And so they need their lamps to stay lit for the wedding. It's not there to illuminate the wedding at night. These lamps are not that big. They're there to just symbolize the blessing of heaven. But if your lamp doesn't stay lit, what does that say about the marriage? Ooh, that's not good. The groom may look a little better in the dark, but that doesn't mean good things for them. And so it was very important that they had their lamps lit. Well, in those days, the wedding was held at the groom's house. And what he had done is after the engagement period, they, they signed the little thing and said, all right, we're going to get married. He goes back to his father's house and adds a room. That's what that passage in John really says. In my father's house are many rooms. We like the King James mansions. But the idea of a room means I'm part of my father's household. And I'm protected by his domain. I belong in God's house. That's incredible. And once he had that room added on, he would go in a wagon to the bride's house. And along the way, everybody would come and bring their gifts for the wedding party and put them in the wagon. This case, the groom is a long time in getting to the wedding. Now, let me show how important this is. Weddings traditionally were held in the morning. They were ready in the morning for this wedding. And what happens? About midnight, the cry goes out, here comes the groom. I mean, he couldn't go anywhere without everybody saying, we're so excited, we're so excited. It's an image of Jesus, the Messiah, coming. Everybody has to honor him. Everyone will declare he is Lord. And what happens? He finally gets there. Five of those ten girls have extra oil. They're okay. The other five didn't. And they're going, hey, give us some of your oil. Can't do that. Took him all day to get here. They may go all night and all day tomorrow. I need all the extra I have. So five of them go down to the Ace Hardware to get extra oil. And then they discover Ace isn't open 24 hours. They have to wait till a Walmart's built. Needless to say, they don't get in. Because once the door is closed, no one else enters. Why does he tell that parable? The whole focus of this is be watchful. But what he's saying is, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Live with an attitude of expectancy. Live as though this God you claim to know is really coming back. Have an attitude of urgency about those around you. 
that their eternity is on the line. Now, let me just be real careful. I'm not going to do this just to shock you. But it's a word that's come down several times, and it's something that I hadn't planned on, but I'm being led to do it right now. Because we don't live in an attitude of expectancy. With all the little ones gone, I can say this. All around us, people are dying and going to an eternity in hell. And the trouble is, the church, by and large, doesn't give a damn. And you're more excited and more upset that I just said the word damn than the fact that they're going to hell for eternity. Let that sink in. How holy are we when we get all upset over a word that doesn't really matter as opposed to what really should matter, and that is somebody that God created for an eternal relationship with him is going to be separated and lost, and we have a chance to go share Christ in our day. That's stewardship. That's worship. That's loving the Lord our God with all our heart. Be watchful. Not just for his return, but for people who need him desperately. And be ready to help. Second parable. Matt talked about this. The talents. Some had just a few talents, others had more. What they did with it multiplied it, they gave it back to the master, and what happened? Those who had multiplied it got more. The one who buried it didn't. Now, I, I can't read this without thinking about my dad and uncle. They grew up in the sand hills of Portales, and there, well, you know, they, they thought they had hit the, the mother low. They found a coffee can full of silver dollars. So what did they do with it? They went out in the sand dunes and buried it. Where'd you bury it? Oh, by that fence post over there. Did you know fence posts move as the sand moves? Guess where that coffee can is today? Still out there somewhere buried. Or else his brother got it and never told him. The key thing about this parable is not that I took care of it so God gave me more that's, that's another fallacy if I do everything God wants with what I have he's got to bless me with more no he doesn't have to do that remember that's magic just be faithful with what God's given you as much or as little as it is but if we don't multiply what he's given us what we have will be taken away if we don't use what he's given us for God we'll lose what he's given us. That's the key of this. He gave you assets. Use them for him. In this life and in the next. Use them for him. That's why when we talk about wills, I'm always real quick to say, don't just leave everything to your kids. Leave something for God. If you've done your job, your kids should be in pretty good shape. And you should have enough that you can take care of them and take care of some of God's work. Remember that. Now, 
plug for the sticky notes. That's one of the things we'll talk about just very briefly. We're not doing details. It's not a seminar. It's just reminders. If you don't have a will, get a will. Well, we live in a community property state. Yeah, but what if you're both killed in a car wreck? What happens to the kids? What happens to your assets? Hmm, I didn't think about that. Those are simple things we can do. But the lesson of love the Lord your God with all your assets, all your resources, is that if we don't use him for him, we may lose him. What's our first asset? Our family. Not our bank account. It's our family. For the Hebrew mind, that was their greatest asset. Not everybody could own land. We don't own any land. I can always act like a gentleman, but I can't be a genteel man because I don't have any land. My mom grew up on a homestead up by Amistad, there by Clayton, eastern side of the state. But they sold that. I'm not getting any land in the future. I'm not getting any oil rights. But I still have assets. Then he tells a third parable. And this is one we look at and we go, ooh, what does this say? The sheep and the goats. On the day of judgment, I'm going to stand there in judgment. And those on the right, I'll say, well done. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Those on the left, not so. You're going to eternal punishment, to hell. And we look at this and we think, oh, this is a, a thing that we're saved by works. Some people try to make it that. It's not. What it is, is your works showed your faith. That's what James talks about. You say you have faith, prove it, show it. Here, the ones on the right, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me and I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. You demonstrated your faith in how you treated these, the least of my brothers and sisters. The ones on the left didn't do that. What he's saying is, love the Lord your God with all your soul. Love him so much that your actions change to be what he would do. Jesus healed those who came. He didn't ask them to go through some ritual first. He just loved them with his actions. Here in a couple of weeks, you're going to have a serve Sunday. What we need to say is that's our worship Sunday to love the Lord our God with all of our soul. And in that two hours that we've given them, instead of coming here, go, do it, show it. You love God, you've given your life to Christ, show it. Do something for someone else in a way that lets them know God loves them. Now, you may have to explain that. I always love the story of the 
one woman at Texas Tech, she was a professor, and she had gone to this counselor trying to work through some things, and the counselor said, you know, I think I've got it figured out. I know why you have such a different attitude. And she said, it showed. I've been, I've been sharing all this stuff, and he said, you're a vegetarian. And she always came back to that, and as she shared that with me, she said, it's that moment that it dawned on me. We can do all the good in the world. We can have all these great ministries. We can serve others continually. But unless we tell them we're doing it for Christ and that Jesus loves them, they won't know it. As you serve, share God's love. Tell them why you're serving. Tell them what made the difference in your life. Show them with your love through action. What's the greatest commandment? Worship God in stewardship as we love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. That'll change the world. You pray with me. Father, this morning as we look at stewardship, not just being a checking account balance or what we give, but actually being a part of our worship for you. Let that sink in. Father, in this, this time we have right now, I pray that you would help us to see our attitudes. Are they good? Are they bad? Do they reflect you? Is there a sense of urgency, a sense of concern for others? Is there a sense of hope for what you can do in their lives? Do we have an attitude towards others that's not flavored by their culture or skin or gender or education or clothing? It is only flavored by your love for them. Father, help us to search our actions. Do the decisions we make every day reflect our desire to follow you and serve you and know you? Or do they just reflect our own desires for the things we want, for the things we think, for what we feel? Lord, I pray that you'd help us to search our assets. Are we using our time and our talents, our energy to truly worship you? Have we gone beyond the finances being good stewards of our families? Father, in this time as we gather together, we have a time of response. May it be a response to give. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Here's how I want us to respond this morning. 
We're just going to play the music. We're not going to sing here in just a minute. Matt's going to be here at the side. I'll be at the other side if you need to make a decision to give your life to Christ or pray about something. But I want to call us as a church family, as a faith family, to commitment. To truly worship with all that we are. So I'm going to ask you to do something just a little bit different. It's going to involve moving. It's going to involve getting up and, and demonstrating. But there's power in movement. There's power in presence. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Patricia to join me here at the front. We're going to pray together during this time of invitation to recommit our family as our boys are coming in for a visit to pray that these few days would be a time of stewardship with them, a time of truly getting even closer to God with them. But would you do that as well? Would you come stand here at the front, pray together, pray with your spouse, pray with your children, pray for each other. Pray for the person in the pew across from you, behind you. That this morning we would enter a time of invitation that as a church family, as a faith family, we are gathered together to pray for one another to truly love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, so that this world would have something happen that's never happened in many of their lives before, and that is a true experience with God. So that a year from now we can say, wow, God, look what you did. Not that we did anything magical, but that we just came as a body and surrendered to you and asked you to do something with us. We stand with heads bowed, with eyes closed. Patricia's going to join me up here. Would you join us as we make this time a time of commitment, a time of prayer, a time of dedication as a faith family together? Would you come right now as we stand together? You come and join us this morning. As the music plays, you come right now. Thank you.